Alright. Um, and I'll do an intro and stuff in post. Cool. So I'm here with Aiden Green, the, are you, the your pro- producer or director of the... Uh, yeah, more like a writer-director combination, yeah. Yeah, and then you're obviously the, the main person in the documentary. Yeah, yeah, so it's a uh, part- participatory documentary, so I'm heavily involved in it whilst also sort of directing and sort of leading the way that it goes. Yeah. So did you want to give us a little bit of a uh, a rundown of what the documentary is and what what were you trying to do with it? Yeah, sure. So... Um, Sort of the, I, I guess the best way that we would describe the documentary, um, it's called The Voice of Our Youth, and we we said the the voice of our youth is louder than ever, but are they taking the right approach? That's sort of like the question we had going into it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were taking a look at climate activism, um, particularly uh, youth-based, and sort of seeing if they were taking the most effective approach into it. Yeah. Um, and along the way, there was like a few things that we figured out in terms of, you know, different subcultures that were were, were within the activism groups. And um, yeah, there was, there was some cool stuff that we found out. Yeah. So, so what was the, obviously you went along to a couple of the protests, uh, but you had some other scenes in a documentary where you went to a, like a round table meeting, it looked like. What was sort of discussed there? Yeah, lots of crazy things, to be honest. Um, people talking about their different approaches to, uh, like, it was essentially like a workshop of workshopping ideas for how to handle a protest and stuff. And, you know, there's a few people that were there that you could tell were there kind of in good spirit and were yep. there just because they were, you know, wanting to fight the good fight for, for climate activism. But there were some people that were there that were just sort of, you know, looking for a bit of a fight. And there's a point in the documentary where um, at that discussion, I, I ask how far is, is too far when it comes to sort of, I guess, the violent side of it. Um, and then the guy that responds sort of is a little bit defensive and he, he says I'm asking the wrong question and, and stuff like that. It, it's interesting. It th- There's a variety of people there with different approaches. Yeah. So was that roundtable discussion organized by a certain group? Yeah, yeah. So so the group that we follow is uh, Uni Students for Climate Justice, which is a, a national group. Yeah. And um, yeah, there's sort of one in, in different states and there's different people that work for it from different universities. So in Perth, okay. we went to the Curtin one. Okay. And then so there's local... So local, say, Curzon students who run that meeting and organize the protest for that chapter, I guess? Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. So but but I, they all sort of combine the unis at, like, major... When it comes to protests, they all combine and sort of act as one. Yeah. Um, but they can run these little meetings and stuff within their universities. Yeah. So at that meeting, were they... You said they were kind of talking about different approaches. Was it a... A formal, like, this sort of leadership wanting to get ideas from people or was it more of a just come and meet people and have somewhere to discuss? Yeah, probably probably the second one, to be honest. Um, it wasn't too formal. There was formal elements to it. Like, there was um, a leader there that was sort of starting the discussions and things like that. Um, and she was, like, throwing a bunch of facts around... Um, you know, facts to do with climate change, but also facts to do with how, like, revolutions and stuff like that have occurred in the past. And mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the, the things that I sort of have picked up from some of these protests, um, being in Sydney, we see quite a few of them. One of the, the big issues that I see with them is that they don't tend to have clear goals, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that's really what I'm trying to figure out. If if you saw, is there any sort of clear clear goal when they go on these protests, or is it more about making making noise and making themselves noticed? Yeah. Well, I guess that's part of where the story of the documentary ends up. And 
obviously we go in thinking that their goal is all about climate change and things like that. And I'm sure that, you know, to an element that that is still the goal by the end of it. And people, you know, they, they want to see laws change. They want to see, um, you know, big, big groups and corporations shut down. But there's definitely another goal and people have different agendas in there. Yeah. So, you know, political agendas, um, along the course of the documentary, we find that so many people there are socialists and that they want to like, you know, overthrow capitalism and all that kind of thing. And it became really interesting, you know, and it was hard as a, as a documentary filmmaker to go in there and keep an open mind. Yeah. Um, someone that doesn't follow their political views to then sort of be like, okay, this is what these people are, are going for. Yeah. But I think they were masking their, their, um, their political issues with climate activism in certain parts. Yeah, I guess climate activism is more palatable than, yeah. than socialist revolution. Yeah, and I was talking to um, a girl, Jackie Turner, who is in Canberra, and um, she was saying how she sort of introduced me to SALT, um, which is the socialist alternative group, and I had no idea who they were at the time. And she was saying that, yeah, they they send people around to different universities and sort of try and recruit people. And so when we were at the final protest that we went to, um, the, the first thing that happened, the first person I spoke to when I got there, like I was trying to find the person running the event to sort of talk to them for a bit. Um, and someone just came up to me and was like, oh, here's, here's a flyer. We've got an event on after this. And it was for a socialist workshop. And so they're really trying to like shove that in your face when you get there. Yeah, I think I've come across them when I was at UWA. There was sort of a very vocal socialist alternative group there. Yeah. Um, and I've noticed them here in Sydney at UNSW. They also like they sort of set up most days somewhere near the library where there's a lot of people walking past and they'll have their table filled with their books and flyers and whatnot. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's interesting. I think like if you are someone that is into climate activism or something like that, it's just worth looking into the people that are organizing the event. And, um, you know, that way you can get a better idea of what you're getting yourself into. Yeah. So on that point, um, I know when you you had the Skype call with the person in Canberra, yep. she was with the Australian Youth Climate Coalition. Yeah, yeah, AYCC, yeah. And that seemed to be sort of a more organized approach than what uni students for climate justice are doing certainly from their website it seems to come across as they run not just protests they run training for people who want to organize uh, events and whatnot Um, and they seem to provide she she seems to be saying that they provide information to everyone coming to the protest of what to expect um, and what sort of like there there are certain risks associated with with protesting yeah um so yeah. what did she tell you about that um yeah ultimately it just came off as like a, a really big contrast with um with uni students for climate justice because uh, as you said like it's so well AYCC is so well organized and they have proper training programs where they um, teach people how to deal with pressure and, um, you know, the proper protest structure of how to be most effective. They mm. have, um, you know, mentors and leaders organizing events and running them rather than just a select few people who kind of, in a way, I guess, call themselves sort of the leaders of, of Uni Students for Climate Justice, but they don't really, you know, the, there's no major qualification there or there's no... There's nothing to sort of prove that they're a leader other than going to a few of these events, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, AYCC just like far more organized and it, it sounds like they take a much more peaceful approach. Approach. Um, Jackie did say, you know, if what they're doing isn't effective, then they will step it up. But they've organized in advance steps of how they're going to step things up. Yeah. Um, whereas with Uni Students for Climate Justice, 
they seem to be a little more like wilder and unpredictable with their approaches. There was yeah. um, a moment which we didn't get to film with the documentary. Um, on the day of the final protest, uh, me and the cameraman Dan, we went up to them and Dan was just about to start filming and they were having like a group discussion. Yeah. And um, one of the guys there came up to me and they were like, oh, we're just having like a, a group discussion about tactics. And I was like, okay, cool. Um, Dan like lifted up the camera and then the guy was like, no, 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 this is, this is like a private discussion. We'll, we'll come find you guys later. And we're like, okay. oh, okay. Like, and, and so we were sort of sat there questioning, like, what is it they're going to do that they don't want to have spoken about on film, you know? Ultimately, yeah. nothing major came out of it, but I can imagine there were some things said in there that were possibly, um, you know, steps that they would have taken. But yeah. I, I don't think they would have been thought through as much, you know? Yeah, or even... I, I can imagine in those sorts of group discussions, you could get a, a little bit of people trying to one-up it, like one another. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And we should do this or we should do that. And even if they don't come to actually do that, it could it would look bad if that, was, that sort of came out on, on film. Yeah, for sure. Um, when we were at that discussion, that curtain discussion that we were talking about earlier, um, there was, you know, one guy in particular, and he was the same guy that shut me down and said that my question was the wrong question. And yeah. at the start, he was saying that, you know, maybe the cameras and stuff aren't a great idea. And, you know, we said, is if there's anyone that doesn't want to be filmed, you know, the, the polite thing is um, a filmmaker to do and be like, you know, we won't film you, just let us know now. Um, and, you know, no, no one had an issue with it. It was just this sort of one guy. And I think that's, you know, once he got a bit used to it, he sort of settled down and opened up and brought out his sort of wilder side when he answered my question. Yeah. Um, so I guess, yeah, that, that's an element of it. So going back to that guy's answer, you, you had asked at what points, like, is it too much? Um, yeah. And his answer was something like that, governments around the world are using extreme tactics to what put shut down these protests and um, just sort of enforce law and order in general um, did you get a sense that they were they were willing to get violent in the protests or was it more just bluster yeah I think so um, there was a massive yeah, yeah, just even just like the vibe that he was giving off, like the way he was talking, um, was with like, you know, there was just like a hint of aggression in there that you, you just feel like on the day that aggression is just gonna flip and you know something could happen. You know, yeah. uh, ultimately nothing did, but um, it was interesting because we went to that curtain discussion after we'd been to a smaller protest run by the group, and and we shot that, and so. Once we'd shot the entire documentary, me and my editor Ian, we sat down and we were, you know, going through the footage, trying to craft a story out of it. We we already knew the direction we wanted to go with it, but, you know, finding the right clips to go in certain places and whatnot. Um, yeah. And it was interesting seeing at that first smaller protest where there was actually a bit of interference with the police and the protesters um, and seeing who was involved in that. Now that we had met a few more people at this Curtin workshop, um you know, you could recognize a few faces. And yeah. uh, one of the guys, uh, uh, one of the girls that was being uh, uh, spoken to by the cops, and there was a bit of push and shove there, um, you know, people were getting in and, like, yelling at the cops and chanting at them. And then one of the guys that was right on the sort of front, sort of almost trying to get involved, uh, was, was that guy that answered that question. So, oh, really? Yeah. And you saw that after the fact when you were going through the footage. Yeah, yeah, because the first time we were there, there was just, you know, so many people we hadn't met before. But then yeah. once we'd been able to sit down with like 15 or so of them, you know, you recognize a few faces. Yeah. So did, did you, you went to two protests. Yeah. And at each of them, were they protesting a specific thing or was it just a general climate action protest? Um, yeah, they were both against Woodside. Um, the first one, we started at Forest Chase um, in, in Perth City, and then we marched down to 
the Woodside building and they were, you know, they, they were pushing on the on the uh, spinning revolving door trying to get into the Woodside building, but because they were aware of it, they'd already locked it. Yeah. Um, and there was heaps of security there and it just kind of looked a bit silly, to be honest. But, yeah. um, and, you know, they were like banging on the windows and putting their posters and holding them up on the windows and things like that. Um, yeah. And then the second one, there happened to be a big Woodside meeting happening on Perth, at, in Perth. Yeah. So we met at Elizabeth Key and we walked over to the Perth Convention, Convention Centre where the the big convention was happening. Yeah. Um, and, you know, people from Woodside came out and took photos and a few of them had a bit of a giggle, which I think just stirred up the, the protesters a bit more. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know if there's been any attempt by any of these groups to engage with Woodside in a not not a protest way, but engage with any of the executives or? Not really. One thing though that was interesting, I didn't get to talk to anyone on camera about this, but um, you know there probably is a, a fraction of footage there of someone saying it, but. Um, they did mention that a few days prior to the big protest that there was another, like, uh, Woodside convention happening Mm -hmm. and a few people managed to sneak into it and they, like, got up on the stage. It was a much smaller convention. Um, Yeah. But they managed to sneak in, get past their security and get up on the stage and do a protest on their stage. Yeah. Which is weird. It was just, like, three or four of them, just a, a small little, I guess, way to chat to them but it just comes off as like a bit of an aggressive and yeah just yeah disruptive is the best word for it a a disruptive way of doing it and disruptive is a word that they use a lot their their goal is to disrupt that's they repeated that so many times so their goal is not necessarily to engage and to to work with the these i guess they call them climate criminals so it wouldn't make sense for them to want to engage but their their goal is not to to do that yeah, they really just want to sort of say their piece, you know, get their get their argument across, and that's kind of it. Yeah. That they don't do necessarily think, want to have a discussion. Do you think that there's uh, an element of it that they want to be... They Obviously, as happens with these sorts of things, they get part of the group and then their friends are the peop- other people within the group. And so part of the reason that they're going is because if they didn't they'd get shunned by by their group of friends yeah and so yeah i i could see that there, there's definitely a lot of like i don't know some guy i was talking to there referred to one of his friends as his comrade um <laughs> and so there's definitely some kind of like i don't know bond there that's <laughs> yeah that like they, they think they're sort of warriors in a way and yeah, they work together like that. Uh, it's kind of. I certainly see a, a level of like I know some people who are, not like not necessarily part of one of these groups, but they become known as someone who likes to take a stand on issues like this. And yeah. I could definitely see that if one of them. Like they would never disagree with one another on that. Um, it's one of those taboo things, and I think that we've seen that to a large extent this week with the Black Lives Matter yeah, movement yeah. that's happened on social media, where there have been a few instances where things have become viral, where people have just jumped in because they have to be seen as jumping in, mm. and then later it's been retracted. Um, yeah, like the particularly there was the blackout Tuesday, yeah thing that happened where it was like it was probably the most widespread thing that happened um, yeah. across like there were brands t- getting involved, celebrities were getting involved, and it was one of these things that you sort of had to be seen as posting the black square, yeah, um, and then. There were there were issues with that eventually, and then everybody had to be seen as re- retracting their black square. 
Yeah, I, I think it was to do with the hashtag because people were meant to hashtag it Blackout Tuesday. Um, so it wouldn't, you know, interfere with news sources. Like if people put, um, you know, Black Lives Matter, then their news feeds would just get covered with, um, you know, black black tiles, um, which is so disruptive to news news sources. So I, I think, you know, if they took, if they were, they did the right thing and hashtag the right thing, then sure, there's no harm done. But when people got a bit carried away and were hashtagging everything related to it, it became a bit disruptive. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was definitely interesting to see that take hold. Um, yeah, and it, it's one of the it's it's been an in, interesting. Obviously, I I think I got in touch with you last weekend. Yeah, to do this interview because the the uh, documentary came out last weekend. Yeah, and when I got in touch with you, this was sort of simmering and it's taken off since then, and we've got to see over the over the week both peaceful protests happening, violent protests happening, things happening on social media. It's kind of been a good case study. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and there has certainly been movement, like they have achieved some things um, in in the last week of protesting, um, of, of obviously the... Um, all the police officers have now been charged with some uh, crime relating to the murder of George George Floyd. They yeah. um and they've started to move to sort of reform the police tactics. Um but did you see any anything from from your experiences with the climate activists? Is there anything that you can sort of shed light on with what's happened over the, the last week? Um that's a that's a big question. Um one one thing that sort of immediately comes to mind that kind of I guess links the two is when I was watching a bunch of you know Channel 7 news footage and, and stuff from the Perth um, Black Lives Matter protests there was um, a, a very few familiar faces that that rocked up on there that were also in my documentary so there's an element... I, I'm not saying that people can't be climate activists and also be going on the Black Lives Matter movement. Like, obviously, people can can do that, and that is a thing. But th- there is an element of... Could people be going just because they like to be involved in these protests and they like, you know, messing around in these kind of situations? Um, yeah, it, it is tricky because, you know, obviously, like I said... That they can just be involved in both, and that's totally fine. But just just from seeing how they acted at some of the the climate activism protests, it, it's yeah, it, it's interesting. Yeah, um, we had in Sydney a protest happen on Tuesday night, I think, and there's one scheduled to happen today. Yep. Um, and both of those have been organised by. Not the socialist alternative, but a, another socialist group okay. here in Sydney. Interesting. Um, and so, yeah, it, it is one of those interesting things where the people organising, uh, they, they tend to pop up across these things. And, of course, you can't say that someone can't be an advocate for two separate issues. Yeah. But I think that there is definitely what you picked up on is an undercurrent of other people using issues just not just to make protests and create disruption but they they tend to always be there yeah and they tend to be sort of at the head of a lot of these these protests which to be fair i don't think is happening over in the u.s and i think it's one of those one of the differences between the US and here is that here you need one of these more radical groups to organize a protest. Yeah. Um, otherwise, it, th- there's no real reason for it to happen. Whereas I think in yeah, the US, sure. of course, what happened to George Floyd was, was horrible. Mm. Um, and across the board, nobody there was nobody who said it wasn't a horrible thing. Yeah. Um but it sparked this this protest and which eventually turned into a riot. Um 
and I think it's got some some undertones to it. There are some underlying factors, like the fact that they've been locked down for three months uh, yeah. over there. They don't have really any unemployment insurance like we have here. Um, their government really has been ineffective at both controlling the virus and at providing economic support. Yeah. And so I think that the people in the United States are just in a far more dire situation than we yeah. are here. I, I think that also comes down to, you know, three years or so of people sort of losing faith in, in the leadership and stuff because... You know, whilst you know you look into it, and there there is a few good things that Trump has done, despite his reputation. Um, you know, upon the whole, he's just not been there as as the best leader. And I think it. I I don't know if you saw Dwayne Johnson's video that he put up, um, and he was asking like, "Where are you, Trump? Um, where is our leader?" And he sort of went into sort of what a leader should be doing at this time. And um, and, and I think the reason the riots have just gotten so crazy and the protests can get a bit out of hand is just because people just haven't had faith in their leadership and Trump hasn't been there as a leader for the entirety of his presidential run. And I saw like a photo that contrasts the White House, I think four years ago on a particular day that Obama was um, still in the White House and exactly four years later from that day, uh, was one of these days with the protests and there's like smoke bombs going off outside. The White House yeah. is in blackout mode and yeah, yeah, it's just a crazy contrast. Yeah, and I think I saw a similar photo, which it, it's a little bit unfair. Um, I think it just happened that five years ago or whatever it was that um, the Supreme Court had uh, found the right for for gay people to marry. Yeah, making it law across the whole of America. So they lit up the the White House and the rainbow flag and then it just happened that uh, five years later this was going on. Yeah. So it's a little yeah, bit I of an unfair comparison. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. But, but still, like, I don't know if I'd see Trump letting something like that happen, you know? Like, he, he just doesn't seem to be that kind of involved in that kind of thing. I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not much of a, like, crazy politician guy myself, but, yeah. yeah. Well, I think on on the there's legitimate uh, things to bring up about Trump's leadership during this crisis and uh, through the last few years. But I think that something Obama said in an Instagram post, uh, I think Tuesday or Wednesday, is is relevant. Is that the leadership and the policy making across sort of across the the government happens on all levels so when you're talking about criminal justice and police uh like police forces and whatnot that happens at a local level yeah um, and a lot of the focus is put on the very top level of congress and um the presidency and i think that's causing a lot of people to feel like nothing ever gets done mainly because those levels of government don't have the power to do those things yeah yeah absolutely and it goes back through obama's presidency through bush's presidency before that um, i'm watching aaron sorkin's the west wing at the moment oh cool and i'm watching his uh, master class on screenwriting at the moment oh really <laughs> he um i think i've seen the trailer for that he like looks at episode like the first episode from season five i think just after um, he yeah left. i've not watched the the show but um yeah he's brought up a few samples and stuff yeah um but yeah the basically the the idea of the show is that it's all about the people within the west wing so the president and his staff and the issues they're talking about back then are exactly the same issues that get debated now um, like yeah. health care uh, like the exact same issue, and they've barely moved. And I think that's an undercurrent within this whole thing that has now boiled over, that people just don't feel like anything can get done in the United yeah. States anymore. When did the, the West Wing come out? Um, 20 years ago, basically. So 
Um, yeah, yeah, I think it started in 99. Wow. Um, and then ran for seven seasons or so. So, yeah, so for, you think about 20 years and there's been no change in what's going on. Yeah. So, in terms of getting back to climate, was there much talk that you heard about the, the school uh, the, the school strike for climate that Greta Thunberg is leading? Um, yeah, like, like the big one that happened last, was it November or something like that? Uh, late yeah. last year that there was like a huge one um yeah you know honestly they didn't sort of bring that up too much other than using it as an example of how um powerful these movements can be now and how um you know it's becoming more well known to the to the public and that um it, it would be more when they have a megaphone and they're yelling it at the woodside building um and they'd be like you know you, you saw how crazy uh, the November strike was or whatever. Um, that That's sort of the only time I heard them properly use it as an example. Yeah. Because it's interesting because that is obviously one that has gained international attention. There's been coordinated, like globally coordinated uh, protests or demonstrations, I, I suppose, because people, I don't think people who... Um, are like eight years old are saying that they're going there to protest and neither are like their grandparents who take them um yeah but what do, what's your take on on Greta Thunberg's approach um obviously she's got a lot of uh global media attention since she rose to prominence uh, was it two years ago yeah something when she went to the UN and had her her speech to the U- to the UN and she's I think she's been active in Europe for a few years uh, notably she goes to the Davos uh, World Economic Forum mm. every year and protests there uh, so what's your take on on what she's doing where she shows up at these sort of more covered events and makes an appearance yeah um, I, I think obviously as far as I'm concerned, she's always taken a bit more of a, a peaceful approach to things. Like, she's nowhere near as disruptive as the people that um, we've been talking to and things. Um, and the fact that she's getting media attention from that and the fact that she's actually kind of getting results and getting to go to big meetings to talk out with, with powerful people, um, I, I think proves the effectiveness of her approach versus the practice, the effectiveness, the effectiveness of people that are just like, um, you know, screaming at the doors of a, of a building and not really organizing what they're doing and looking for a, a bit of a fight. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, her, her track record, there's not been much history there of, of any sort of, um, things getting out of hands at, at protests that she's organised, has there? No, no, not that I know. No, I, I, I think she's been pretty successful with that and all, like, the, especially that big one in, in November, I think, um, was so, so, so peaceful and it got so much positive media coverage other than people saying, you know, it got in the way and, and stuff like that, but you're always going to get that. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, like I said... It I, didn't come off as what some of these other protests come where they'll show you the, the... The images that came out were the thousands of people filling parks and filling streets and whatnot. Yeah. Versus when these other demonstrations happen, they'll pick out the the people who sort of look really radical in the group and show that so that's what everybody sees on their six o'clock news yeah is these these radical people who look a bit weird yeah um, and are, are yelling and screaming whereas the the one that happened in november was a very positive uh outlook like people had to go up and from like helicopters to get the masses of the, the crowds yeah um now that's really interesting because an angle that we were going to take with the documentary at the start, and we, we did pursue that for a little bit, and there's elements of it in there, but I think for the most part it got cut. 
um, was sort of mediated violence and how the media, um, what their approach to sort of violence is and stuff. And, you know, like we've just been saying, when it comes to a protest, it can be a totally peaceful protest and then one person can, you know, throw a brick through a window, step out of line, you know, do, do something bad. But then that's what the, the news then focuses on. Um, yeah. The, the, the entire protest then sort of gains a stigma of um, being one that was violent and not well organized. And it kind of, in a way, loses its respect. Yeah, definitely. I think that's, I mean, it's not even, they don't even need to focus on it. Really what the media do here in Australia is, is it interesting example because we don't really have the polarized media that there is in other places in the world mm. of course there, there are a few channels which are more polarized than others but the vast majority of people watch either channel 7 or channel 9 news yeah um, and so they have to run much more middle of middle of the road mm. but they still are operating on the exact same media uh the media economy that places other other uh, other news channels in the world are operating under, and they make money by stoking outrage. Yeah. Um, and so the even when they have a peaceful protest, they can talk about how it's peaceful and get people who support the protest outraged that nothing's going on. And nothing's been been done about this. Look how many people are demonstrating for this. And then they'll say right at the end, while the the protest was mostly peaceful, there were some disruptive and it shows someone throwing something or yelling. Yeah, true. And that gets the other side all riled up. So, oh, they can't come out here and be violent like this. Uh, There's a really interesting book by Noam Chomsky called, uh, I think the title is Manufacturing Consent. Yeah. And it focuses that on that uh, thing that the media does where they make you feel like you're informed. Um, but they really just, they're spinning a narrative that isn't a left-right narrative per se. Yeah, It's more a narrative of we need to make money, so we need to get you to tune in here. And usually that means we need to make you hate somebody. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so there, there was a really fascinating story in there about when I think it was it was one of the popes got there was a, an, an attempted assassination on one of the popes. This book was written a fair while ago, um, and he sort of did a, a a study on how the media covered that, and there was sort of an interest like there was. A, an aspect of the story where they thought he could be working effectively for the Soviets. There was a very small connection and the media blew that up out of proportion because they wanted you to hate the Soviets for trying to kill the Pope. Yeah. Um, when in reality, th- the evidence really didn't stack up for that being a thing. Um, yeah. And so, and actually what happened is he was kept in prison. He was able to watch the media coverage. The, the assassin was able to watch the media coverage. And then he ran with what he was seeing on the media oh, wow. in his story. So he actually changed his story over time to be more in line with the, what the media was wanting people to believe. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And then I don't know if you've uh, heard of Matt Taibbi. Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, he's a a journalist. Uh, he rose to prominence during the financial crisis. He was writing for Rolling Stone okay. at the time. And he, um, because Rolling Stone is, is not a daily paper, um, he was able to spend time writing about things in a bit more depth than, than your, your New York Times or Washington Post is going to be able to. And so he was able to unpack some of the the real issues that were happening within the financial crisis beyond the daily news cycle of they want to do like bail out these companies while these 
people are getting kicked out of their houses and whatnot. Yeah. And he's written a book recently called Hate Incorporated. Okay. Um, And it sort of, it sort of follows on from manufacturing consent and says that while in the days when Chomsky was writing, there was a very clear enemy in uh, like the Soviet Union. And then once the Soviet Union fell, there wasn't that clear enemy enemy anymore. Um, And so the media needed to come up with an enemy that we could all hate. Um, And so what they did was they basically came up with this left versus right whole dichotomy that we've got. Yeah, true. And you can see it change over time. During the 80s, when, um, when Ronald Reagan was president, he was, he was pretty popular. Uh, Margaret Thatcher was pretty popular. But he wasn't that different to Donald Trump, when you think about it. Yeah. I and mean, he was an actor. He was an actor, and he went and became president. Like, people, like, he didn't have political experience. He was very right-wing, etc., etc., but he was loved. Um, whereas now the media has to feed on the other side of the political spectrum as, as the person you're supposed to hate. So if you watch Fox News, you hate the left. Everything they do is evil and terrible and they're incompetent. And if you watch MSNBC or uh, CNN, then you've got to hate everyone on the right. Yeah. And so what it does is it allows them to mold these these narratives around things like this 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 climate protests they can mold the narrative around uh the people who support it or don't support the narrative and not around what the government's doing or what the company is doing yeah yeah w- one thing that we were cautious of when when we we sort of found out that salt was involved in these climate protests was, mm-hmm. you know, we did a bit of research on it and we found that uh, a bit more into how the media represented uni students for climate justice and um, there was such a big majority of articles out there that were just, the way they'd talk about them was just like, like, like they were just children and just screaming and stuff and, you know, we had to be sure when we decided that we are going to sort of take the angle that followed on the salt aspect a bit we had to be sure that we weren't just following the media representation of them. Um, yeah. And I, I think a lot of articles and stuff out there, they didn't really have any evidence in there and stuff. There, there was no reason for them to have taken the approach they did in talking about them that way. Um, yeah. It was, it was only, you know, a handful that actually had examples of things that these people had done and then they could, they could sort of validate their claims a bit more. And with yeah. us just, you know, spending time with these people and going to a few of their protests and events, that's why we sort of decided to take that approach because that's, you know, kind of how we felt towards them. We were still trying to be unbiased about it and I think the doco ends on a bit of an unbiased note. But, um, yeah, we, we really had to be sure. That, that was like a big decision for us to make to, to follow that because it could then also become a bit controversial going that way. Yeah, and it's, it's, you can see in those articles when they write about the about uni students for climate justice, if you don't like them and you, you're, not, you're not supporting what, what they're doing, all you have to do is throw in that there's socialists there. And yeah, exactly. It discredits them. Yeah. Um, we had big, where, like, um, we had big yeah, conversations with our, with our lecturers. Um, uh, when we were sort of, all of this stuff was coming to light, I sat down with one of my teachers and sort of explained the entire situation to them. And I was like, this is kind of much bigger than what we were setting out to do. And it it's getting kind of crazy. Um, and I, I want to take this approach. I want to follow this angle. And the teacher like sort of talked me through it. And he was like, if that is what your documentary is about, then go for it. But if it's something that's just going to cause drama and, and stuff like that, then 
you know, you don't want to just be going on it to follow the sort of hype train or, or what the media is doing, you know? Um, yeah. And he was also, you know, saying don't, we don't want to bring any harm towards the university that I study at and, and things like that. So there was a lot of elements yeah. and it was, it was quite scary to sort of take the risk. And, and then I, I decided to ask the question to people um, when I was conducting Vox Poxes, which are the, you know, the interviews you see on the news, like on the street when they have a microphone and they're talking to like sort of random people and they're getting like a, an idea of what the, the population of that event is, how they're feeling towards things. Um, yeah. When I was conducting a few of those, I, I decided to end with the question, do you feel that people are here for climate activism or do people have their own agenda? And um, a few people were like a bit honest and they said, you know, they kind of hinted that people would have their own agenda, but that's not what it's all about. Um, mm-hmm. But then there was like a few people, particularly a girl who run the media side of Uni Students of Climate Justice and a girl who was in charge, a bit more in charge of it all. They both, you could, I, I don't know, t- to me, I felt like they were sort of lying a bit in their answers and they were sort of yeah coming off a bit ungenuine. Um, yeah, they're saying that it, it's all there for, for the climate activism. Yeah. But- and they kind of dodge like the question. Very a bit. clearly, there are other there are other things going on. Yeah. And I I think that that is one of the issues with the current situation is that it's so easy to discredit these movements by saying, "Well, there's socialists there. There's this group. They're not, they're clearly not trying to do climate justice. They're just like got their own agenda." Yeah. Um, and while that may be true, they may be socialists and they may want to they may have a dual agenda uh they could also be there to promote climate justice yeah Um, and it makes it it makes it really challenging for these movements if they get associated like that um i I think the way that you you showed it was like you you brought it up yep like there are some some socialists here and whatnot but then you also included the interviews with the more moderate people like yeah. at, at the round table discussion you had that confrontation but then you had another interview with with someone else who was there yeah who who was far more moderate yeah we we had to to be as unbiased as we could like that that's part of what um a good documentary is and um we we would have at my university weekly cuts. Um, Well, you're allowed to. Some people didn't enjoy doing weekly cuts, but to me, like getting feedback weekly is is so important. Um, Mm -hmm. And so every week we would have a new cut uh, that we would send through. And some of the earlier cuts, you know, we we had good feedback. um, And there was, but there was like some people, um, people who I think, would possibly side with like socialists and stuff you know i don't actually know their political views but they they kind of come off that way to me um and they they were saying you know it feels a bit biased and you know you're taking mm-hmm. the, you know you need to be a bit more unbiased with it all and and so with that it was it was genuinely just changing the order of a certain amount of things so it didn't feel like yeah we were constantly bagging on things and also just cutting out a couple of bits of narration that might have been a bit more my opinions coming through than yeah than what it what should have been said um but ultimately like i'm happy with how it turned out we we changed the final narration so that it was a bit more open-ended and a bit more positive and a bit more what the documentary was about um I can't even remember what the first narration was, but I, I do remember it being, yeah, slightly too biased. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, oh. um, sorry, I just got a beep on my, my so phone. Um, the, I just wanted to take a step back with, and just talk about the, the process of doc, making a documentary like that. Yeah, sure. Um, so you're saying, 
obviously the style of documentary that you were doing is one that is supposed to be un unbiased. Do you think that there is a a place for documentaries which are, are pushing a particular viewpoint? Uh, it's complicated because there's there's lots of examples of documentaries that are yeah pushing an agenda and they are a bit biased. But for me, they don't really come off as like honest stories. They just come off as like a a feature length advertisement for something. You know, like um, you need to hear both sides of the story. Um, it's hard mm -hmm. sometimes because the other side of the story don't want to talk and and things like that. Getting permissions in documentaries is is painful. Um, yeah, but um, yeah. There's definitely a huge market and so many people out there that, you know, would watch documentaries and not even think about the fact that they haven't spoken to the, the other side of the argument. And they will just, you know, hear this one, you know, 60 minute documentary, watch that um, and sort of believe everything. And then yeah. that just becomes, as a, as a filmmaker, you're then taking advantage of sort of the power that you have in that situation. Especially if yeah. you're you're making a documentary which has sort of the voice of God, um, which is like that's the best example I can think of is like you know how David Annenberg he's talking over to you the whole way through his things and you believe him mm -hmm. because he sounds like he knows what he's talking about and Annenberg I'm yeah. sure <laughs> has always been truthful and honest in his documentaries. Um, yeah. But if you were to watch a documentary about something a bit more controversial and then you hear it come from a voice of God like person you're then, you feel kind of obliged to believe that it's true. Um, yeah. If you're a bit more... And I more... suppose in that situation, when you're sitting there and watching the documentary, you're not in a a frame of mind to question yeah, what's exactly. happening. And I, I think when yeah. you're a bit more involved in media and, you know, when you, when you work in filmmaking, then you question those things a lot more. Um, because you're yeah. sort of used to it. Once you've made a documentary, you kind of know how you should deal with those kind of things and how you should try and get both angles on a situation. Um, yeah, and I, I suppose really the, the words there are that when you've made a documentary, you have the skills to to question what's going on. Yeah. Whereas the layperson just doesn't have the skills or the knowledge to to question these sorts of things. And that's why I think you see insane conspiracy theories like flat earth and yeah, <laughs> those yeah. sorts of things happening. Because if you see a documentary that someone's put together and put on YouTube about it, then, and you don't have the skills, you don't have the knowledge to refute anything that they're saying. Like, yeah, you, you're inclined to then believe them. Yeah. Um, we saw something like that happen recently with the... There was that Plandemic documentary or like a trailer for a documentary, supposedly. Oh, yeah. That started making its rounds on on YouTube and on Facebook, which was just in, like utterly, utterly f like full with misinformation. Hmm. But unless you're a medical expert, you're not going to have the skills to refute anything that those people were saying. Yeah. I think it uh, just comes down to like the ethics of, of filmmaking in a way, you know, it, yeah. it sounds kind of mystical, but it, it, it's just, you know what it is. You don't want to take advantage of the, the weird power that, that is filmmaking. Yeah. No, there, there, there is definitely a responsibility for, for filmmakers to present things in a certain way that even if it is biased, at least the viewer is able to realize that. Yeah, and they can still form um, their own opinion. Yeah. Um, and I, that's something that obviously gets combated in, like, political ads where they, at the end, they have to tell you who made the ad. Yeah, for sure. So it, it's it's part, like, it's sort of more transparent that, hey, we're actually just trying to take this person down where we make an ad about them. Yeah. Um, and we are actively opposing them rather than this being a completely unbiased statement of fact. Yeah. Um, one thing that does come to mind, that it would be interesting to get your opinion if you um, do 
do have one on there was a documentary that came out last year on netflix uh called the game changers uh, which caused a bit of controversy um i don't know it off the top of my head I, d- I definitely haven't watched it but i might know a bit about it if you dive into it um yeah so it, it was just interesting that there was a bit of controversy over how they presented certain facts they used um it was about veganism and mm. it was trying to show you that veganism is an elite diet like there's all these elite athletes that uh use like that that are vegan um like they were using arnold schwarzenegger and uh certain ufc fighters and whatnot and then it caused a big controversy um and i don't know if you listen to joe rogan's podcast yeah, um, but he he brought on someone who came on to refute the things that were said in the documentary, and then a week later or so, there was they brought on the documentary, uh, the maker of the documentary, um, along with this guy, and they had like a three-hour face-off over it. Yeah, uh, and b- beyond the the sort of science of whether veganism is the best or not. Um, It was just interesting to see how certain things get framed, uh, like the fact that they had Arnold Schwarzenegger coming out and saying that he's vegan um, and kind of leave out the fact that when he was an elite athlete, he definitely wasn't vegan. Yeah, true. It's, and those sorts of things. It's just like people picking what parts of information they want to put into the documentary and leaving out other parts. Yeah. Or even, like you said, presenting things in a certain order. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I have heard of that documentary before. I think it came up in a conversation I was having with someone once um, and that they felt, you know, the same way where where the argument wasn't being conveyed correctly. And Yeah. And I think it, it ended up discrediting the documentary, unfortunately, because there was some real science in there hmm. um, and there was some some real things to be taken away from the documentary. But it was... Um, it, w- it was unfortunately presented in a way that people could take a side against it. Yeah. Because they presented it too much like propaganda, I think. Yeah, okay. Um on the other side of it, there's a very good documentary on Netflix, I think. It's called... I'm just going to bring it up because I think it, it's well worth people watching. It's called, I think, Overturning Row. Okay. And it tackles the abortion debate in the US. Yeah. Uh, it's called Reversing Row. Okay. Um, and it, it tackles the abortion debate through basically interviews with a bunch of different people uh, and that is one of the sort of most polarizing issues in at least American politics more uh, and here as well yeah for sure but I when I came away from it I was like okay like I've learned some things about what one side thinks and um some of the things that some of the beliefs that I held have been challenged, and but I didn't feel like it was really pushing any particular side. It was really, really well done. Yeah, and, th- and those documentaries are, are seriously the best ones because I think it, it gives. It, it's also more challenging for the audience member, and it's more engaging for them to then have to sort of, you know, choose what side they take and. I think when you are just getting one side, it becomes a much more passive viewing because you don't really, you know, you're not questioning yourself, you're not questioning your beliefs. Um, yeah. It's just it's just far more engaging when you're given sec- two different parts of the argument. Yeah, so that, that's definitely um, interesting. I just wanted to, just one final question. Obviously, your documentary was in a very similar style to what Louis Theroux does. Was it... Partic- like was that an sort of uh, inspiration? An you influence? know what is so weird is that 
obviously I knew who Louis was, and in in class, they'd shown a couple of clips, but. Prior to filming the documentary, I had not watched a single Louis documentary in full. Oh, wow. <laughs> I know. It was crazy. And, you know, when we were editing it and my teachers were seeing different cuts of it, they were like, wow, this is like a real sort of Louis approach. And yeah. I was like, oh, cool. Yeah, I know what that means. Sure. <laughs> and, and like, I, I did know because of, I'd seen clips and I, to an extent, kind of knew his approach to things. Yeah. Um, but since finishing the documentary I've then taken a deep dive into some Louis stuff and I, I think in the past couple of weeks I've watched like seven Louis docos and I just bought his his book like two days ago yeah his book um, is really good I read it last year yeah is that his new one because I know he's got two yeah the um, um, gotta get through this yeah yeah that's what I just bought yeah yeah no, it's, it's fascinating so it, it <laughs> I don't know I, I just like I watch his docos now and I'm like man I so wish I watched this guy beforehand because, you know, maybe I would have taken, you know, the same approach as I was going to take, but I would have had better examples of, you know, what I've... How he does you know, it, yeah. Yeah, and I don't think I would have been as afraid to step out because Louis can... Um, he's not totally unbiased. Like, no, he does have an opinion in his docos and you can tell the way he reacts when talking to people, how yeah. he feels about them and stuff. And I think I was really scared when I was making the doco that I didn't want to seem like I was, you know, I, I didn't want to come off as the bad guy when talking to like these kind of activists and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, after watching Louis, I'm like, yeah, that's, I guess that's fine. I, I, I know some people have criticisms about that with Louis, but. Yeah. Well, um, I think what you brought up before is that because he is on camera talking to the people. It, it's not yeah. that voice of God. And so you can tell it's his opinion. He's asking a question to get a response from the person. He, w he wants to see what their response is. Now, yeah. I think the most interesting one that I watched from him was when he went to the, um, oh, what's the, the church, the church's name? Oh, the, the um, is it Westboro West Baptist? Baptist Church. That's yeah. it. When he goes yeah, that's interesting. and sort of, and cause he's, sort of vehemently opposes what they stand for. Hmm. Um, but he is that any, he's able to ask questions to get them to defend what they want, but without get making them get defensive. Yeah. Which is fascinating. That That's a talent there. And I, I think um, with Louis and with my documentary um, at the start of this, uh, conversation. Uh, I mentioned how my doco is participatory, which is what Louis' docos are, because you know the the filmmaker is directly involved and, yeah. and is in the production. And when a film is participatory, the story of the doco kind of becomes the story of the filmmaker that is within the doco. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think then you do get a bit of leeway as to you can say what your views are and your views can be present as yeah. long as it's not enforced on the viewer. Um, and I think if you go in with a, a truly open mind with those things and you allow your views to change from the beginning of the documentary to the end, yeah, um, you, you sort of make it, you give the signal to the viewer that it's okay, you're allowed to have a different opinion after this than you had at the beginning. Yeah. And, I had so much fun with that making hours, honestly, um, because I, I went in sort of looking for a hopeful, um, you know, documentary and sort of trying to get people to protest in the most effective way as possible. But, you know, obviously all these revelations came out and I found out all these agendas and stuff. Um, I saw a bit of push and shove between police and, and the protesters. And especially after that first protest, I just remember being like, I just need a few days to, to think because I don't know how I feel about this right now. Yeah. And and ultimately, the decision that I would come up with would then affect the approach with that documentary. After every shoot day, and we had like seven or eight shoot days, Yeah. Um, I would sit down with the group and sort of say how I felt. And because there was like a crew of like eight or so of us, um, it was like so vital that we all knew the direction that we were going with things. Yeah. And so... It was then on me to sort of, yeah, really convey how I was feeling. 
Yeah, it's very interesting. That uh, Louis' book is is very very good. He deals with I don't know the f- the full details, but there's someone he he spent a weekend with in his early days filmmaking. Made a documentary about him. His name Jimmy Savile. Yeah, he turned out to be a bit of a um, not so savory character. Interesting. Um, um, sort of tied up in sex scandals and whatnot. Um, yeah. And Louis deals with in the book. He he sort of talks about how he made this documentary with before these things came out. He had presented Jimmy Savile in a very positive light and. Then later, when all these things came out, he sort of deals with how how does he, as a documentary maker, deal with this because he's sort of tied his reputation to this guy, made a documentary yeah. in a certain way from what he knew at the time. So he wasn't lying at the time. But then um, he sort of grapples with, well, hang on, this he did this thing while I was there filming with him. Was, that, was I not sort of totally responsible should i have picked up on it it was very interesting yeah that is, that is super interesting i'm really looking forward to getting into his book yeah anyway i need to get out of here in a little bit so we'll we'll stop this here um yeah, no i just wanted to point everyone towards your youtube channel's uh, greeny productions yeah cool um, you <laughs> make some re- really interesting films i watch watch every one as they come out Oh, um, and that's where the the documentary is is hosted is it at, at the primary place uh yeah yeah so um at the moment i don't know when this podcast will come out but it's my most recent upload um it's called the voice of our youth and um yeah i hope your listeners might go and check it out and um i guess form their own opinions and stuff yeah and um is there any other social media you want to point people towards where they can find you um Sure. I, if there is people that really like film and stuff on your on your podcast, then I, I chat about films and TV on my Twitter quite a lot, which is greeny underscore pro. And um, that's probably the most active place I am for just chatting. So Awesome. Well, yeah, well, th- thanks it for is. coming on and uh, giving some of your experiences. No, it's been really, really fun. Really, um, you know, kind of challenging in a way because I've had to sort of, yeah, it, <laughs> it's, been, it's been cool. I liked it. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. like reflecting on a lot of things so it's cool yeah well thanks for coming on and um good luck with uh further documentaries you make yeah thank you cheers